Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Good evening everyone, Talo Falava and welcome. I'm Eri Tuyavi'i and I will be facilitating the conversation this evening as your MC, otherwise known as the Master of Chaos. Auckland Conversations provides an opportunity to inspire and stimulate your thinking about the challenges facing Auckland City. Tonight we welcome Jarrett Walker, International Consultant in Public Transit Network Design and Policy, along with our panelists to discuss transport planning as freedom planning. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is a fantastic turnout. We also welcome uh, those joining us online who are watching on the Auckland Conversations website. A shout out to you. Was I looking at the right one? Thank you. Uh, first, a uh, couple of housekeeping rules uh, this evening. Uh, in the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound and will be directed out of the building by our ushers. Don't follow me. I'll be finishing off the food before I exit. Bathrooms are located outside the room opposite the ballroom entrance. Finally, please, this is a public service announcement. Switch your phones to silent. We'd like to thank Auckland Transport who have partnered who we have partnered with for this event and particularly to Emma Cagney for their support of this Auckland conversation and who are celebrating 15 years in Aotearoa. Our thanks to our Auckland partner, the South Base Construction, our design partner, Razine, and all our program sponsors. Whitney Houston uh, was quite well known for singing the song, I believe the children are our future, teach them well and let them lead the way. I was going to sing it, but I've been advised that uh, auto-tune would interfere with our streaming capabilities, so I'm not going to sing it. But it is important to gauge the views and the opinions, the beliefs, the feedback that our young people, the future emerging leaders of our great, wonderful city have. And so this evening, I'd like to invite to the stage uh, two remarkable young men who are going to be sharing their thoughts and their views and their experiences. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Milan and Kay Stafford to the stage. No, my haramai. Inga kirikawa, ai mihi katika ki Auckland Council, inga rangatira, noreda no mai haramai. Ko tainu i te waka ko toku mari te maunga, ko wairau te awa, ko parirarua te marai, ko ngati tama, ngati rarua, ngati maniapoto, ngati toa hoki o, o maua iwi. Ko keis toku ingoa, ko ten... Um, ko Milan toki mahanga e tuana. So what my brothers just said is where where we're from, and what I've just said is to welcome you guys. Um, so thank you. 
So to uh, elicit some uh, responses or some sharing this evening, I've got, I've got some user-friendly questions uh, for you young lads this evening. Uh, do you catch the bus? Move forward, move forward, and uh, smile straight down there. Do you catch the bus? Yep. Yeah. You both do? Okay. So the first question that I have, the second question I have for you is, what do you see the future of transport in Auckland as being? And don't worry, it seems like a curveball question. They're totally prepared. So the future of transport in Auckland. So the future of Auckland transport. Okay. Um, um, bus buses running on electricity and trains running on electricity. There we go. <laughs> you have you have what do you like about catching the bus? Let's have an easy one. Uh, so that our parents can uh, don't have to worry about us getting to school say, um, safely and uh, not having to come pick us up at like three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Finally, what changes would you like to see to public transport? We had a, a short chat about this earlier. Any changes you'd like to see? Electricity. <laughs> Electricity. Running. Electricity for the wind. Electricity running through buses and trains. And a lot more tra um, trains and buses going throughout uh, Te Atatū Peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in case you couldn't figure that out, Auckland Transport, there was a plug for West Auckland. Ladies and gentlemen, Milan and Case, thank you very much. <laughs> The format for tonight will be a keynote speech from Jarrett Walker followed by a discussion with our panelists. We will then open up the discussion to questions from the floor. We will be using Slido, which is an interactive Q&A tool for audience questions. If you don't know what that is, neither do I, it's on the script. If you have a smartphone, we encourage you to visit slido.com, enter the event code, hashtag freedom, and ask your question. We will get through as many as we uh, can, and you can submit your question anytime throughout this evening. Alternatively, feel free to raise your hand old school during the interactive Q&A to ask a question. You are also welcome to tweet during the event using the hashtag Auckland Conversations. We always try to ensure the Auckland Conversation events are inclusive and accessible. On demand viewing of the event, a full transcript and captioning of the event and presentations will be available on the Auckland Conversations website in the coming days. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on to tonight's conversation. The challenge of public transit today is not just having good ideas, but being able to explain them. It's crucial to integrate the task of planning along with the tasks of explanation and of creating leading innovation processes, innovative processes that engage and empower our public. The goal is managing behavior change in a positive way, changing the way people travel and the positive outcomes that it can produce for Auckland. Tonight we aim to start a conversation about how transit works, what choices it presents and how we can use it to create a better Auckland with some real life examples of changes that 
you know, they're about to reshape the way that we use the CBD and beyond. Before we welcome our illustrious, wonderful keynote that I had the pleasure and honor of meeting earlier today, we have a short video to get you thinking about what's going to happen in the streets around us as Auckland City Centre is hugely transformed. We're going to show you a short video which sets the scene for the changes you will be seeing in the coming years. May I direct your attention to the screens? Auckland City Centre is the beating heart of the region's economy and is growing at a rapid pace. In the coming years, it will develop into a more vibrant and better connected place for people to live, work and play. The Wynyard Quarter community is thriving as the area develops. This will continue as exciting new public spaces, commercial properties and homes are completed. Improvements along the waterfront are picking up pace as we head towards the 36th America's Cup in 2021. And the new infrastructure being built will be used well into the future. Key Street will evolve into a beautiful waterfront boulevard with more space for people and events and with better public transport access. The redeveloped ferry basin will allow for higher numbers of commuters and visitors. The City Rail Link will open up Britomart Station so more trains can get in and out and Aucklanders can travel around the region more efficiently. When Aotea Station opens, the surrounding area will transform with the revitalisation of Albert, Victoria and Wellesley Streets. Federal Street and High Street will also be improved to form pedestrian-friendly links through the central city. The community is changing in response to resident and student growth and private developments including apartments, university buildings and the NZICC will also benefit this growing population. When the CRL arrives uptown, street upgrades will be enabled and Karangahape Road's enhancement will provide cycle-friendly access through this unique neighbourhood. The transformation beginning now will provide an exciting city for future generations. We are creating a place to be proud of, one that puts people first and one that is distinctly Tamaki Makoto. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. That was by design. I'm now pleased to introduce Jarrett Walker to the stage to deliver our keynote for this evening. Jarrett is an international consultant, that was also by design, is an international consultant in public trans transit network design and policy. He has been a full-time consultant since 1991 and has led numerous major planning projects in North America, Aussie, and New Zealand. He is president at Jarrett Walker & Associates based in Portland, Oregon and principal consultant with Emma Cagney in Australia. He is the author of the popular public transit blog humantransit.org and the book Human Transit, How Clearer Thinking About Public Transit Can Enrich Our Communities and Our Lives. This book is a friendly, non-technical introduction to transit's underlying geometry and the real value judgments that must be explored to make both transit and development policy. His background integrates an arts and humanities PhD with long technical experience in all aspects of transit and its role in city building. He is a frequent keynote speaker, 
teacher and facilitator of decision-making processes. Please welcome Jarrett to the stage. Thank you very much, Eddie. Kia ora, and uh, delighted to be back in Auckland uh, in this marvelous city that is changing, but changing in ways that make it still recognizably a New Zealand city and not just any other world city. And, um, and I'm excited to have been a part of that in the role I played back in 2012 in laying out the framework of your new bus network that has now come on and uh, is starting to happen. Um, uh, Eddie mentioned my book. The book is for sale uh, out there in the, in the lobby. Feel free to help yourself. Um, transport planning as freedom planning. What do I mean by freedom? Well, I believe that whatever freedom is, we're going to encounter it by first facing reality. So let's talk about reality for a second. How many adult elephants would fit in a wine glass? Notice the sensation of the kind of certainty that you feel when I ask that question. That sensation is called axiomatic or geometric certainty. You are really sure about how many elephants will fit in a wine glass, so sure that I bet you don't even need data. I bet you don't actually need to take some wine glasses to the zoo and do this experiment to know the answer to this question. So now, let's talk about the future, the exciting future that we're all supposed to imagine. In 2050, how many adult elephants will fit in a wine glass? I bet you know the answer to that too, don't you? That's because to know that you know something geometrically is to know that it will be true in the future. In other words, there is a kind of knowledge that we can use to make predictions. And who doesn't want predictions? People are calling me up, journalists are calling me up all the time asking me to tell them what the future will be like, what the smart city will be like, what our cities will be like in 2030. And I don't know a lot about elements of that answer, but I figured out over time that I know more than you might think simply by the fact that I know about elephants and wine glasses. And a lot of the problems we face in our city are problems of that kind. Specifically, they're problems about space. What is a city? A city is a place where people live close together, which means it is a place, it is a place without, um, it, it, which means a city is a place without much space per person, which means a city is a place where space has to be shared. That's what a city is. And the problem of sharing space is just the foundation of what we have to do together to make a city. And the way we share space determines whether we are making a city that is inclusive or a city that is only for certain people. So you've all seen these images, an uh, organization called We Write Australia staged these images um, about how, many, how much space 60 people take if they're on a bus in the context of an urban street and how much space is left over for all kinds of other things if they do that. Here's how much space they take if they're all on t um, bicycles or scooters human body-sized vehicles, essentially, that enable us to travel faster than walking without taking much more space than we do otherwise. And then, of course, there's the image of how much space those same people take if they're in private cars and how little room there is for anything else. <clears throat> 
Now, of course, it's time to talk about the exciting new technologies that are coming to transform our cities. So here's what, what it will look like when everyone is in Uber. And then, once we have driverless cars, it'll look like this. But that will actually be even worse because of a phenomenon that the economists call induced demand, which is a great way to make yourself sound smart if you know the term induced demand. But it's really something I need everybody to understand, and it's better to understand that we're talking about biology. If you make a desirable thing easier to do, people will do it more. In other words, if you remove hassles and difficulties associated with driving, people will drive more. This is not economics, this is biology. In fact, it's very close to axiomatic biology. If you think about what an organism is, any living thing has to get some sort of resource out of its environment. And it has to spend less effort getting that resource than it gets back in energy from that resource. That's the basic math of how you keep living, right? And that's all induced demand is. It's the observation that an organism will tend to do things the easy way. And so if something becomes easier, if, for example, using your personal car becomes easier because we remove the hassle and danger of driving, people will do it more. We already have an induced demand effect happening just with Uber because, of course, that too has removed the hassle factor of driving. And in large cities that have really been taken over by Uber and in the context of failing to invest in public transport, we're seeing explosive growths in inner city traffic congestion that's really strangling everybody's opportunity to go anywhere and do things. So only two things ultimately fit in limited space. One is for us to share the ride in large vehicles. The other is for us to use small vehicles that are about the size of our bodies. Nothing else scales to the dense city that you ultimately want to be. So now let me ask you a completely different question. <clears throat> Do human beings value freedom or opportunity? When I gave this talk in Australia, someone came up to me afterward and said, you really shouldn't use the word freedom in Australia. It sounds American. <laughs> and that's fine. So I'm going to invite you to think for yourself about what word you want. But it, what I'm talking about is the sense that when you go out the door in the morning, there are choices before you. There are different things you can do. And that even if there are rituals and, and responsibilities in your day, you get to make lots of choices. And that in the bigger period, there are choices in how you will live your life. Choices in what job you will compete for, what school you will go to, who you want to meet, where you want to hang out, what you want to do and that those choices exist for you. That's what I mean by freedom, and what I mean particularly by the physical dimension of freedom. All those things that you can't really do on the internet. Um, and if you believe that human beings value freedom and opportunity, I'll ask you, in 2050, will human beings value freedom and opportunity? And now what I'm inviting you to notice is that, again, this sounds like psychology, this sounds like culture, but it's not. It's basic biology because an animal, a successful animal of any kind, is going, needs to move. Needs to be able to move out into its world, needs to be able to, to pursue desired things, avoid dangers, needs to be able to move fundamentally. And that's all we're talking about when I talk about physical freedom. By physical freedom, I mean 
all of the of of I mean your ability to go out into the world and and do things and choose among things, and we can visualize this by by drawing a map around the wall of the wall around your life. So this is a visualization uh, my firm did. We're doing a redesign of the bus network in Dublin, Ireland, right now, a similar project to what we did in Auckland, and we now draw these images for a hypothetical woman named Jane. Who, currently, who happens to be located near the Dublin City University, this blob shows where she could be in 45 minutes on public transport plus walking. My engineering friends might call this a transit shed or an isochrone. I prefer to draw, call it a map of the wall around her life because if she can't get there in 45 minutes, it's not a thing she can make a daily part of her life. She, be outside of this wall are jobs she can't hold, schools she can't go to, clubs and organizations she can't belong to, people she will never meet, quite possibly a person she will never marry, because again, there's only so much of this you can do on the internet, and because, she, because that just wasn't available. It was outside of the wall. Now, I want you to, so I want you to be aware that in our daily lives, we have this wall around us, and that wall is essentially the limits of how far we could get to in the amount of time we have to do something. So it's about 45 minutes if you're talking about a daily activity like work or school. It's further out if you're talking about a weekly activity, but it's closer in if you're talking about something you have to do quickly, like go to lunch or errands. But that wall is there. And so what did we do with our network plan? We proposed to change that to this. And we can talk about exactly how it changed. That Jane, under the new network, can get to 43% more jobs. You can also turn this around. 68% more people can get to her if she's a destination, like the university. I'm not talking about transport anymore. I'm talking about the quality of people's lives. And particularly, I'm talking about people's ability to choose things in their lives and therefore have better lives, because they had more choices. So freedom is a thing every organism needs. It's a, it's a geometric thing that we can predict. This is very important. This brings us back to elephants and wine glasses. I am absolutely sure of that calculation. It's not a calculation that's about Jane's psychology. It's not a prediction of what she will do. It's not, you know, so much of what we do in transport is talk about the psychological or cultural uh, um, uh, and behavioral aspects of transport, we try to predict what people will do. And I propose something else, which is that independent of our predictions of what people will do, it's a good thing that people can do things. And that's what freedom is measuring. It's measuring that you had choices, which is a good thing regardless of what you chose. Now, this is taking us a little bit away from what we often have in this part of the world, which is a rather a tendency to think about, public, about transport in business metaphors. And from a business perspective, of course, the idea of the customer having choices is not useful at all. What you want is to predict what the customer will do, influence what the customer will do. And so this, is, this requires thinking about freedom this way, caring about freedom this way, requires that we step back from that and say, wait a minute, no. As citizens, as humans, as people in the city, we are entitled to a degree of autonomy. We are entitled to choose when we will be customers. We are entitled to make choices. And the city ought to care that we have choices, not just that we, will, that we choose something. Um, 
Freedom, I contend, is also inside of a lot of other things we care about and that people tend to talk about in different languages as though they don't agree with each other deep down. So think about long-term real estate value. The current belief is that if you want long-term real estate value from public transport, you have to have tram tracks in the street outside of the building. And that it doesn't maybe matter all that much where the tram goes. The important thing is that there are tram tracks and there's a tram going by and therefore you can take photographs of the tram going by the building. Now, there are lots of good reasons to build trams if you're trying to maximize freedom, but this is something different. Because, because, of, because once you decide that the important thing about your development is having tram tracks outside, then you're likely to build a useless tram because the usefulness of the tram wasn't that important. The important thing was to have a tram. And I've been in plenty of those conversations, watched those things happen. We have a fairly useless tram in my home city of Portland. The tourists love it. It's great. It's nice. It's not a thing you use if you're going anywhere with any kind of time value. We have the joke that it's easy to photograph the tram in front of the building you're trying to sell because it usually isn't moving. Um, but, may, but what if long-term real estate value really lay in, if you are here, what could you do? What if it were not just about, is there a symbol of public transport like tram tracks in the street? What if it were about the sum total of where you could go if you were at this location? I suspect in the long term it is, because in the long term people figure this out and that in the long term you're going to see real estate value increasingly converge around actual places where you can go lots of places on public transport, even if there aren't actually rails there. General prosperity, social inclusion, much of what we talk about on the social side of transport is in fact isolation, entrappedness, the need to move out into the world so that you have choices. Now, I know the way I know about elephants and wine glasses that the way to do this with public transport is fixed route networks. And that the key thing about fixed route networks is that you have to use whatever technology is right in each situation, but then make them all work together to create grids or other kinds of network structures that work well. The key thing about fixed route networks is that they use scarce space efficiently because they're an efficient way to get people onto big vehicles. The rigidity of the line is what gives you flexibility. This is very important. A lot of my millennial tech friends are out there saying that the only reason we have rigid fixed routes, rigid bus routes, is that old fogies like me just have rigid minds. And that now these kids have come along and have liberated us from old fogies like me and now everything will be flexible. And now you'll just call up and a vehicle will come to you whenever you need it. Um, it is actually the rigidity of the fixed route that makes your, your life so liberated. It is your certainty that that vehicle is coming at that point, at that time, when you need it, regardless of whether you called it, regardless of who else called it, regardless of whatever else may be happening, that makes public transport so liberating. If you've lived in a city with a big metro system, you know what I mean. It is precisely that the station is where it was yesterday that, that makes you so confident in moving out into the world. Nothing that can possibly happen, demand responsibly, is ever going to come close to the efficiency of great fixed route services, bus and rail, that are designed to succeed. They are at completely different orders of magnitude. And as a result, public transport, the fixed route, can scale in a way that little vans are not going to scale, at least not prior to automation, because as long as we have a driver in every van, that's an enormous cost 
that is never really going to make sense. And even once we have automation, supposing that we do, we will still have the problem of space. It will still be the case that the big vehicle uses space efficiently and the little vehicle does not. Um, what's the core of how, how then of how we create these networks? Of what, what do I do when I'm trying to create freedom? Well, before I got to the point of visualizing freedom, long, long ago, I coined the slogan, frequency is freedom, because of all the elements of public transport, frequency is the single most important one for, for expanding that blob of freedom, moving the wall around your life outward so that you can do more things. And it's also one that I constantly have to explain, because if you are a motorist, and most decision makers in our cities are themselves motorists, you don't have a concept of frequency. You have a concept of speed, you have a concept of nice vehicles, you may have a concept of reliability, and so, you, and so when you come to public transport, you'll want to talk about those things, but you don't have a concept of frequency, because that experience of you cannot go until uh, a vehicle comes is not really your experience as a motorist. So I have to pound away at it. I have to emphasize that frequency is a cubed value. It does three different cool things. Less waiting, easier connections, which is what combines routes together into a network, and a backstop for reliability. And it's because of that that we get this nonlinear payoff by actually investing in it. It's really expensive, but it's really worth the investment. And we see that all over the world. So hey, Auckland, that's what your bus network used to look like. Red on all of the maps I draw is, is high-frequency service, turn up and go every 15 minutes or better all day, and that's what it used to look like, and that is more or less what it looks like now. Before, after, before, after. Remarkably little money had to be put into it in order, this is not, it was not really that much of an expansion of the service, it was just a reallocation and a reorganization of one of the most inefficient public transport networks I had ever seen, and I had seen a lot of them. <laughs> It's working. Patronage is growing somewhere around six, seven, eight percent year over year in all the different sub areas. This is a spectacular success story. And remember too, the measure of a fixed route network is not, riders, is not how many people ride in the first couple of years. This is a great start. What really starts to happen is that the frequent network needs to go out there and be an idea in the city that helps people organize their decisions about where to locate and how to arrange their lives. So because frequency is invisible, because you can't take a picture of it, one of the strongest responsibilities of Auckland Transport, of anyone making decisions or thinking about public transport, is to draw a map of this frequent network, make it really visible, help people talk about it. You want to pick up real estate ads and see apartment listings saying on frequent bus so that people, then that's how you know that people who value public transport are, are locating themselves where it will work for them. The public transport line comes to be lined by people who appreciate it. What could be better? That's actually how we get there. And so we have a lot of great examples of that, of cities that have gone a long way with that. Toronto, Minneapolis, Brisbane is the only one. Oh, Vancouver actually built a regional goal around the percentage of population on the frequent network. They've already achieved that. Remember that frequent buses are a key to affordability. I don't, I'm not expressing an opinion about your light rail projects here, but rail is always going to drive up housing prices rather steeply because it's always going to be scarce. Bus services can go so many places so quickly if you had designed for them 
that they can't possibly drive up real estate prices as high everywhere, and as a result, the best way to maximize affordability and freedom is usually to locate on a frequent bus route, not necessarily on a rail station, because you're likely to be able to afford life on a frequent bus route. So that's why the nexus with development is so important. Here is a street near my house that is a frequent bus route. It does not have a tram. It's not going to have a tram. It has a good frequent bus service, and that's what we've done with it. One of the key ways we did this, very nearly zero requirements for off-street parking. We want units to be affordable. We're having a crisis of affordability, and so we're doing everything we can to make things cheap. And the key thing to make things cheap is to help people not have to own cars and to make it cheaper for them to live without cars. And so getting rid of on-street parking has been crucial to being able to deliver this kind of density. So this is my last slide, and I want to just come back and, and, and bring it back to the big picture for a second. Once I started looking at this diagram, once I started looking at this image for the first time, the wall around my life and how, what I could do to expand it so that I would be freer, I realized that this is really the frame in which you have to analyze every other opinion about public transport that you're going to hear. Because when someone says that something else is important about public transport, they are saying that this is less important. They are saying that you should be able to go fewer places so that we can have this other thing that I want. And that's the context of, that, of, of, of all of those claims. So for example, if someone says buses aren't important, we, you, can, you, can ask, you can tell this tool, I would never ride a bus, and it will show you a vastly reduced freedom. The wall around your life will move inward, right? And you'll have less places you can go. You can say, I won't walk, I won't interchange. I'm used to the buses as they are, leave them as they are. All of those things will bring the freedom inward give you less choices and options in your life. Um, and so I ask you, I'm not telling you, but I'm asking you, how important is each of those opinions to you compared to the desire to have a city in which people feel that they can go out in the, into their city, make their own choices, find their own happiness, find their own prosperity by having as many options as possible? That's my question. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jarrett. Tons there in terms of food for thought, so hold those thought patterns. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce uh, the panelists for this evening. And uh, as I introduce you, please make your way up to the stage. Jessica Rose from the Albert Eden Local Board. She's a board member and representative for Women in Urbanism Auckland. Daniel Newcomb, Manager, Strategic Projects, Central, North and West Auckland Transport. Pity I didn't bring my drum because I need a drum roll for this next gentleman. Ludo Campbell-Reed, Design Champion and General Manager, Auckland Design Office, Auckland Council. I'm seeing some fantastic questions coming through on Slido, so please keep those coming. Jessica, do you think women use public transport differently to men? If so, in what way could this impact transport planning as freedom planning? Can you hear me? 
<laughs> Eddie, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, I guess, though, while I've been sitting down watching this, is I kind of wondered if it could be posed to any of the other panellists. I know the answer, but does everybody else? Um, yes, women do use public transport differently, and they use it for a multiple of reasons. Um, some of it can be because women are more likely to feel harassed in public transport, and I guess when we think about freedom, it can sometimes be freedom to do things, but it can be freedom from things as well. Um, also, women are more likely to take multiple stops um, when making a public transport movement, and I noticed when you said Jane earlier, Jarrett, um, who clearly wants to get married, um, but Jane, 45 minutes, is that 45 minutes point to point, or is that if she wants to go from work to home and then to the club, and does she want to stop at the pharmacy to pick something up on the way? So, and women are more likely to be caregivers also, um, so they will often maybe have to drop kids off on the way to, um, kids off at school on the way to work, or go and pick up groceries during the day, uh, and women are more likely to outlive men which is another societal concern on its own, but it means we've got uh, a lot of women who, who may be at a point in their lives where public transport is their only way of moving around and it may be difficult for them to access. So yes, women potentially do use transport differently than men and it does affect the, the freedom. Daniel, which transport projects are going to have the greatest effect on the city in the future? Uh, well, um, on behalf of Auckland Transport, I should probably say our projects will. Um, <laughs> I should say the, the light rail and the uh, city rail link projects in particular are going to move a lot more people, um, and it's not just because they're rail projects. Um, but I was actually thinking uh, on the way here, and we were talking about this before, I think things like Lime scooters are going to have the biggest impact going forward. Um, Lime scooters, and not them in particular, but micro-transit little things that we haven't thought of yet that are coming, aren't, aren't well predicted in our models and our thinking and our planning. Um, my strict observational um, data from looking out the window and watching people use them is that a lot of the trips are being made are induced trips. I know Jarrett said that induced trips uh, can be a bad thing, and that's true with putting in a road and having cars in it, but I'm seeing a lot of the Lime scooter trips as being induced travel that trips people wouldn't have otherwise made because uh, they're smaller, shorter trips and they would have said, oh, I don't have a bike with me, um, there's no bike parking, um, I don't have a helmet, and all of a sudden they've got the freedom to go and do that. So I see them as a fantastic new trend um, that will be uh, filling the first leg, last leg of a public transport trip or expanding the walkability of a, a part of the city. Um, and it's a new kind of concept of a shared uh, transit space efficient thing. I totally agree with Jarrett that it's about uh, technology uh, will save us, but not through automated uh, cars. It'll be through little micro transit things that we haven't even thought of yet, hoverboards and stuff like that, um, which will provide choices that we don't even know that we need at this point. Uh, so it makes it very hard for someone like me to try to plan the network. So I think we might just focus on the big tubes to, to move big lots of people and let uh, some of the market to provide uh, the microtransit um, innovations which are seeming to unlock uh, cities in particular with space efficient um, transport options. Thank you. Ludo, as Auckland's design champion, 
What has Auckland done to integrate its new public transport network with people's onward journeys by foot and cycle? I.e., what are the good examples and where might we want to focus our attention next? Um, can, I... can you hear that? Yeah, there we go. I, I, can I just be cheeky and, and, and just mention something about what Jessica was talking about earlier? I think the, the whole concept of, I mean, I think cities would be far more livable if more women ran cities. Um, there's, there needs to be diversity at, at the decision-making tables. <laughs> there needs to be there needs to be decision-making diversity in, in, in all the aspects of what we're doing here. And I can't I can't think about it what it's like to be a woman because I am not. And I don't. So the point is, you need more women making decisions on these things that matter, and more diversity therefore. So when you think about engineering, we need more women engineers. We don't need more men engineers because they're thinking about themselves. So I think there's a bigger, bigger concept here about diversity of thinking. So I, I, th I think the question's really good, but I think it's really difficult. It's like asking me, what's it like to be disabled? I get asked, well, do you understand? And I say, well, no, I don't, because I am not. And so you need people in your teams who do understand that. So it, it's, it's, it's perhaps a, a cheeky way to just um, in, encourage that conversation a bit further and a really important one. So um, in terms of your question, um, I was thinking about this, there's a couple of key things and bearing in mind what Jarrett's been talking about and you know, key things around PT, you've got to, you've got to design the infrastructure first. You know, you know, London built its underground system when it had a population of one million. Think about London today without the underground system. So the forefathers of London decided, and, and mothers, decided to build the metro then and they thought about the future. So you've got to do it first. You've got to locate it correctly. I was thinking about isolation or PT isolation. Think about Palmerston North. You know, I've been there a few times and they used to have a railway line right in downtown, the middle of Palmy. They then moved it out to the outskirts of town so it becomes really difficult to get to. So these are the, these are the challenges of how you deliver PT. And, and at some point in every single journey, you are a pedestrian. And I think the whole design of our PT networks, our transport planning needs to put people at the center. You know, we should be psychologists, not planners. So I think, you know, Brunemart's brilliant. You know, it's fantastic. It's got a great street network. It's well integrated. Um, I think uh, New Lynn is a great example of a, of a fantastic new PT node with a really good uh, pedestrian environment. New Market could be, but it isn't. Um, I think that could be done a lot better. Um, and I was thinking about Albany. I mean, if you try to catch a bus in Albany, it's really difficult. So there's a, there's a bunch of areas where we need to change the way we do our street design. And I think that's the key for me. So, um, you know, challenges going forward. Um, I think southern growth areas are a real challenge, how we design a, a more walkable street network before we design the houses and before we design the employment. It's about getting the grain right. So. Sorry for the long answer, but there's a lot to talk about. Jared, have any thoughts to share on the three questions just asked, or would you like to move on? <laughs> well, those are all great. Well, let me see what else you have. How do we get more buy-in and support for public and active transit from the private sector, especially employers for employees? Well, California is very good at this. If you have more than 200 employees, your employees' transportation is your problem. And so the way we interact with the private sector is really critical because 
the private sector through its location choices and its development choices. Yes, they bring jobs, that's great, they give us things we want. They also create transport demand. And they can create it well or badly, and they can create problems for us, or they can create solutions for us. It is frequently the case that an, if, if an employer's goal is to get the cheapest possible land, the place to put that is way, way out beyond Albany somewhere, right? And then that's going to be a call center, and like 300 low-income people are going to have to find their way out there every morning, and that's going to be a problem. So that's a case where the profit of the company has been, trans has been essentially dumped onto uh, a, a problem for their own employees. So I think the key here is to put forward the idea that an employee's commute reality was created by the employer and that the employer has a responsibility to be part of solving that reality or maybe even making choices that don't even create it. Some of these questions have uh, common denominators or themes, so I'm gonna ask you two at once and uh, any of the panelists feel free to address this. So the first one is how do you define frequency? What is the threshold? The second one is how do we address streets that have become severed by a wall of buses? What is the optimal number before we reach overcapacity, particularly in the city center? Those sound like they're directed at me. Um, um, the optimal level of frequency is the experience of turn up and go. The experience that you wait a reasonable and short amount of time uh, and a bus comes along. That actually varies depending on how far you are going. So you'll wait two hours for a flight to Sydney, but you'll wait a day for a flight to London. Our sense of how far we are, we are willing to go, is, uh, of how long we're willing to wait is related to how far we're willing to go. Having said that, there's another thing that comes back to Daniel's comment, which is that as we, get, we start to see scooters in particular, in other words, what I see about scooters is it is going to be increasingly possible to move like a bicycle without necessarily the athletic effort of a cyclist um, for those people who for whatever reason aren't in the position to do that. And that opportunity to move more people in a bicycle-shaped kind of thing is really important. Because what that means is that we're moving in a direction where public transport does not have to do the one kilometer trip anymore. The one, two, three K trip should probably be on a bicycle or a scooter. And then public transport can specialize a little more. I mean, not that it won't still be there, it won't still be useful for it. Of course, you can ride two Ks down Balmoral if you want, but it means we'll be able to put stops further apart, focus on slightly longer distances. For that reason, though, you, the rule of thumb and the rule of thumb that AT has used is 15 minutes. Um, but in a local thing like CityLink, it would not be acceptable for CityLink to be every 15 minutes because that's just too short a trip. It has to be more frequent than that. The wall of buses, I want, I want Ludo's view on the wall of buses too. Um, it's, it's not a problem. Uh, um, I find that buses um, stop at signals and do other things that create ways through the wall. And so I am personally not as disturbed by the wall of buses as I am disturbed by the wall around my life. Um, and I am willing to tolerate some buses being present so that human beings can have freedom and opportunity in their city. Having said that, one of the, if you want a real wall of buses problem, go back to what the CBD looked like before the new network. When something like 1,000 buses tried to enter the CBD in 15 minutes in the morning, I don't remember the exact figure, 
but the extraordinary inefficiency of, of network design is one of the ways you get too many buses providing not enough service. I think what you want are a lot of buses providing useful service so that, and, and once lots of people are coming and going on those buses and those buses are spilling forward pedestrians, you won't see them as a wall so much anymore. I think um, one of the things that we've been talking about more recently is this, um, the concept of, of, of not planning a city for rush hour traffic. Um, so what we tend to do is we tend to plan a lot of these things in, in, in the peak. We, we, we build car parks for Christmas shopping so at, at supermarkets so that everybody who wants to shop on a certain time, one day a year, you've got enough space. For the rest of the time, it's idle, redundant. Mm -hmm. So that's how I see Auckland for many, many years, for 40, 50 years. Uh, the streets are large, they're wide, um, they're empty of cars, but during a rush, so I think the key is really understanding how we can elongate that rush hour so it's maybe not called rush hour anymore. Maybe we sort of, I don't know, some, there'll be someone smarter than I with a, a better word for it, but push that out a bit longer, you'll get less walled of buses. And I think it's a good thing, it's a good sign that, we'll, that it's working. So that's, that's my, that'd be my comment. Jessica, what do you find the most frustrating thing about transport in Auckland to be? Oh, it's definitely um, it's definitely trying to get across town to somewhere. So, for example, it's really, really easy if I want to go directly from where I am to the centre of town. That's awesome. I can do that. I can In rush hour, I can do it very quickly. During the day, it takes me a bit more wait time. What I find the most frustrating is, uh, is genuinely getting to my workplace at the moment. Um, that's very hard to do. I can only do that really in a car-dependent way. Um, if I want to go and visit someone in Papakura from where I live, that is also extremely frustrating. Uh, if I wanted to visit someone in Papakura and then go to town, I can still get to town from Papakura. That's excellent. So I think the most frustrating thing is trying to get across town to things. Or again, I think it takes it back to, I mean, that's my personal experience. But I think um, in, in that way, it could also be the multi-stop trips where you're going I guess not, not to the CBD is probably the most frustrating thing. It used to be much worse. <laughs> <laughs> you used to not be able to get to the CBD either. <laughs> Daniel and panelists. So I'm assuming it's for everybody, but you've got to answer first. How can we get bus lane users, cycling lane users, and private car users to cooperate with each other? How long have we got? <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm, I'm a cyclist. I came here on my bike. We, we came here on our bikes uh, tonight. Um, I ride down Dominion Road every morning in the bus lane. Um, I'm comfortable with that, but I'm a nearly middle-aged male uh, who's been, been... Thanks for the... Um, and so I'm confident. Uh, and um, I'm happy uh, overtaking a bus, having a bus squeeze part. We're not happy. I'm, I'm familiar with a bus trying to squeeze past me um, and, and I deal with it and I, I actually did some uh, research when I was at, at university into uh, bus lanes. I found that the wider the bus lane is, the safer it is for a cyclist. I mean, go figure, there's more room for the bus to get past you. So um, I think there's um, that spatial element that Jarrett uh, keeps talking about, but there's a behavioural politeness element about how we behave uh, with each other and that you see that 
on the streets every day when people are perfectly polite to your face but you put them in a car, all of a sudden they just see red and they just want to uh, yell at you and give you the fingers. Um, I think uh, we need to have a much greater acceptance of the shared uh, need for safety and being able to get to your destination that we seem to lose as soon as we get behind the wheel of a car. And as a cyclist, I feel that acutely uh, because when I have an incident with a car, I come off second best, whether it's my fault or not. Uh, so which is why I make my kids wear the helmets um, on their bikes. We saw a, a lady get hit by a car the other day on her bike and it was terrible, but it was useful for me to use that as an example for my children to say this is why I go on at you like a grumpy old parent. Um, and I want them to be feeling the freedom to go out and cycle and walk uh, all around our neighbourhood and into town um, and not to be scared of these big buses as these horrible um, uh, things which are terrorising the streets. Um, so I think it's behaviour. I think the physical design of the street has a lot to do with it and we need to do uh, better about that. We will never live in a world where we have enough room, space to provide a separated thing for everybody and they can all do their own thing independently. Um, that would be great, but we don't and shouldn't have that. Uh, so to me, that's why I think the emergence of spatial, uh, spatially efficient vehicles and technologies is going to be a big help here so that people can make choices and feel safe, feel comfortable, feel able to make all the trips that they want to make in their, in their daily life um, without having to just say, I'll bugger it, I'll get in my car and drive. I can never go at this one as well. I think we need to turn the, um, the transport hierarchy pyramid upside down, which means we need to put people who are walking at the top of that, people who are bicycling next to that, people who are taking public transport by that, and so on and so forth, so the people who are flying get the least priority. But they already kind of do anyway at times. So, um, But the, I think the key thing is we need the supporting legislation that goes with that too, and that needs to be built into our road code. So it is actually very rarely or, or almost never going to be the fault of the person who's walking if they are in some kind of um, accident involved with another vehicle. And, and it kind of goes on by layer of vulnerability rather than by layer of, um, of accident or, or human error. So therefore people who are in a vehicle who are more likely to do more harm need to be holding a lot more responsibility at all times when they're behind a wheel. Kia ora. How do other cities provide freedom for people who cannot walk far during any part of a journey? Similarly, what is the most effective tool for making a city easier to move about for young people and the elderly? Um, so we have this challenge in public transport planning, which is that most people will be willing to and will walk a good 400 meters to a useful public transport service because that is the way they maximize their freedom. They are being logical in doing that. And so we get the most freedom for the most people by designing a network where parallel routes are around eight or 900 meters or a kilometer apart, not closer than that. Uh, because that's how we build up frequency and frequency is freedom. However, we then have public meetings and we hear particularly from people who have difficulty walking. And we respect that and we know that there are some, that, that that's a mixture of it's inevitably a mixture of, I just don't like you changing my bus route, I don't like having to walk further, and some people who actually can't walk further. Those are two different things. Um, 
and that ultimately there needs to be a backstop for people who truly can't walk those distances. Uh, and that is, in America, we call it paratransit. There has to be some sort of underlying demand responsive service for those people, but there has to be a pretty good eligibility limit on it because most people can walk, and the way the system works best is for most people to walk, and walking is good for you if you can do it. So, so that's more or less how it's done. I think with young people, you know, it depends a lot on the parents' attitude toward their young people. Um, I started changing buses in the rain when I was 10 years old. I was sent all the way across Portland to school and changed buses in the middle of downtown uh, at a time when there was much more crime than there is now. I survived that. Obviously, I was male, which helped. But um, um, I think children tend to be more, much more resilient than their parents sometimes give them credit for. Um, but I think, I, I think that it is, of course, a parent's judgment what you're going to, what you're going to do. Uh, by and large, I think what we see with public transport is that there is an age, and it's sort of the parent's choice, for me it was 10, when you say, okay, this person's capable of functioning as an adult on the public transport system and navigating it and doing everything that, that an adult would do, and there's no reason really to have any special accommodation there. I knew this one would come up. 10,000 steps a day is a healthy amount to walk. However, if we flood the city with scooters, are we adding to the obesity epidemic? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yep. What are, so we've talked about uh, walking to and from public transport. The Lime scooters can fill a, a void too. Um, and hoverboards will come at some point and they'll, they'll help. Um, but a lot of what that actually, the underlying uh, philosophy there is uh, being active and not being in a large space and efficient vehicle. So getting, walking around the corner to find the Lime scooter and then finding somewhere to drop it off or going and getting another one because the battery's flat, that all makes people walk. Um, and uh, I, I think we've historically made uh, design buildings and streets around the car park and the car access, and I think increasingly that was a, a foolish thing to do and we'll be changing that. Uh, and we'll be looking for uh, shorter connections that can be made on foot or on a small electric transit something, um, which will induce um, a lot more walking that people don't even know they're doing. So 10,000 steps is great and it's a real pain to, to force yourself to do it, but the best kind of steps you can get is when you don't know you're doing it and your active day uh, delivers it to you. So when I catch a bus, I walk a lot of steps, a lot more than when I ride my bike, and I don't realise I'm doing it. I get home and I'm tired. Um, so I think uh, it's about the the way you integrate those transport services into your uh, lifestyle will um, just automatically, if you do it well, uh, increase the activity of people, and uh, I guess encourage them by. Um, sleek design to move around the city on foot a bit more than they, they otherwise would. Can I, can I challenge you on the hoverboard thing? Because I'm kind <laughs> of, I, I mean, I'm really concerned about the, some of the technology that, that's out there. And, um, you know, technology is, is it's a master servant kind of conversation. Um, technology serves the city, not the other way around. It's a, it's a tool that enables you to move around, to move freely. It's not the, the, the be-all and end-all. I think if, we need, if we're not careful, we will start walking a lot less. Human beings need to walk. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are an animal, as, as Jarrett talked about earlier, with some really basic needs. And those that obviously can't walk, 
I think autonomous vehicles and so forth is an incredible, incredible invention and it will change their lives. So, you know, I, I get that. But if we are thinking about the future of cities being more hoverboards, uh, drones, I, I hope I don't see that because it'll, we'll become just like every other city that, wants, that thinks that transport is going to be solved by the technology. And I can think of nothing more horrendous than people flying around in, in, in these types of situations. Human beings need to walk. That's why we were here. That's why we're called human beings. And we need to keep walking to stay alive. My parents um, have a house with three stairs, cases in the house. They're still alive because they walk around that house. People who are given a flat house, single story, who don't have to climb stairs, are fitter, un more unfit, um, more obese, and unhappier. And it's really interesting. Human beings need to keep moving as long as they can. So I'm just concerned about hoverboards and things. I hope I never see them. Yeah, I, what I think. Um, <laughs> so I, I've I've seen Back to the Future. I know what's coming. So, but I think with the the maybe the more relevant point is that I agree with Ludo that technology won't save us. And the the uh, thing that I'm most scared of is when I'm talking to, or or finding out what um, people in Ministry of Transport and places like that are looking at, and they are looking at the way technology will make uh, car trips. Um, uh, more efficient and autonomous vehicles and things like that, which I think is the wrong application of the technology, um, and I totally agree that, that that would be a terrible outcome. So um, I guess I've been a real sceptic of technology will save us because of that's the way I've seen it being applied, just a new technology applied to old thinking. And I think what Lime Scooters, um, to me, unlocks is people going, oh, I didn't realise we could do that. That's another way of me getting around in a more space-efficient way, and they start to do more trips on foot, or on partly on foot, um, in, within a city centre at least, which is something that we are not uh, are prepared for, and that we should be, and we should think about more ways of, of enabling that to happen, and stop focusing on whether they've got a helmet or not, um, just make the whole street safe for everybody would be good, um, then we wouldn't have to worry about uh, how fast they're going or whether they're on the footpath or not. Sorry, I just also wanted to ask, like, who really thinks that a hoverboard's going to be easy to manage? Like, honestly. So you've spoken about the need to be active and to move around and whatnot. Jared's book is entitled Human Transit, How Clearer Thinking About Public Transit Can Enrich Our Communities and Our Lives. Located underneath one of your seats, is a signed copy of Jarrett's book. If you'd like to move now, you might find it under your seat. If there is a spare seat next to you, shuffle along and check that too. Okay, so now what we're gonna do is we're going to open it up for questions from the floor. So we've got a couple of mic runners. Um, if, you like to, if you want uh, a succinct, informative answer, you'll ask a succinct, informative question. If you want a long-winded, waffly answer, you'll, an you'll ask the same. So, um, in the interest of time, also please direct your questions at one of our panellists, or if it's everybody, please state so. Thank you. Is it on now? Uh, it's on. It's on. Okay. Thank you. Um, Thank you for your presentations. This question is for everybody. The reality now is that we have a city with a lot of cars, 
and some people taking buses, some people cycling, some people walking. I do all, th all four of those. However, I am put off cycling in particular because there is no cycleway close to where I live. We live in Epsom. How do we encourage people to use active transport when we still have to mix it with the crazy car drivers of Auckland? Why don't we make our bus lanes 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And why don't we also provide cycle lanes on those roads, like, for instance, Manukau Road or Gillies Avenue, which are wide enough and could have a cycle lane and make it 24 hours? Uh, okay, so um, on behalf of Auckland Transfer, I can answer some of that. Um, although some others might want to have a say. So we are actually uh, about to start a project called the Integrated Corridors Program, which is a bus lane cycleway safety um, program, which is looking at 11 corridors across the region, but actually on the Isthmus, I don't know whether Manukau Road might be one of those. I think it is. People nodding. Good. So um, that is all about the fact that we have typically gone and applied uh, one modal solution. We've come and put in a bus lane and later on we've gone somewhere else and put in a cycle lane and we've done a safety project over there. And more and more we are recognising that that was a foolish thing to do, we should put them together. So we've combined the bus lane programme, the cycle programme and the safety programme and we're doing an integrated uh, corridor work. Um, that will be hard because, as has been said a lot of times, uh, they're not making any more space on those corridors. Um, and we're going to have to make compromises about who wins where and to make uh, safe cycling infrastructure in particular is going to be really hard because that's a new thing that we're putting in that's going to make the most change. I mean, bus lanes have been around for a while and you can usually just do a bit of paint. A dedicated, safe, physically uh, separated cycleway is, is tough and sometimes we're going to have to cut down trees to make a bit more space and that's going to be hard for the communities. We're going to have to take out things that they appreciate like um, uh, pedestrian refuges or parking or um, features that we really like or things that make things work well. Um, so that's going to be a challenge for us but we are uh, fronting it more than I think we have in the past. In terms of the 24-hour um, bus lane uh, issue, sometimes we do have them where we can get away with it um, but very often we've put in the peak time only because that's when the most buses are there and outside of those times, the bus lanes look empty and we get a lot of pushback from the local community to say, I'd like to be able to park in my shops or whatever outside of ours. I think increasingly as the frequency goes up and up and up and the multiple layers of the bus network come together, it will be self-evident that they need to be longer hours, whether they're 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever, um, that, that will change. Um, but I think that will be the reality of a new city where we're having more people around, more people moving, and the need to accommodate them all in the same space. If I could just add, paradoxical fact everyone needs to remember is that when a bus lane looks empty, that means it's working. If the bus lane is jammed, that means it's not working. So of course the bus lane looks empty, that means it's working. Uh, we get this especially from the perspective of a motorist who stopped in traffic and sees that empty lane there and now and then a bus goes by so fast they don't even see it and so the lane looks empty to them. No, that means it's working. 
I'd say that there are a multitude of reasons. We could probably have an entire conversation just about the reasons why we can't have all those outcomes. Um, some of them, though, are simply money. I, from my role in a local board, we get a small amount of money that we can apply to small funds, and, uh, small um, projects, and the cost of actually sometimes putting something in so far exceeds that that there's just nothing you can deliver. And it's a real shame. Um, so one is that. And I'd say um, another one is, and I, I kind of want to pose this to the panellists as well who work in these professional realms, is are we innovatively looking at the way we're using the space? Because there's a lot of traditional ways that we're used to. Um, could we allocate the road corridor differently than what we're used to doing it? So that's more of a question. Could I just um, perhaps talk, respond to the lady that, that made the question? I think the question is fantastic. Um, and I think Daniel's um, you know, given a good, good answer. Um, there is a lot of change happening in Auckland at the moment. And, and if you think back to the 1950s, Auckland had the highest patronage of public transport per capita in the whole world. So we were the leading city in the world for PT patronage. Um, today, we're one of the worst. We've taken 50, 60 years of motorway road building. That's been our agenda. We ripped up the tramways in the 50s. We built a very different type of city. There's a lot of space, and Jessica's right. You know, it's about reallocating that space. It's about understanding who your city is for. Um, you also talk about money, Jessica. And, and at the end of the day, a lot of big projects don't have any budget for walking or cycling. And I think that that's another way to get this, this program up and running because it's always like the, the icing on the cake or it's the nice to have. It's got to be about the must have. It's got to be in the money at the front as part of the project budget rather than something we have to run around with a begging bowl. So it's about changing that. And I would say that the new government has been amazing. Um, $28 billion is coming into Auckland over the next 10 years. We've got a long way to go. I mean, it's not going to even touch the sides but it has to start and we're on a journey and the, the bus network, as Jarrett said, is, is a, an amazing global success story, the way that has transformed our city and will continue to do so. So we're putting all these things back in. We're, we haven't even started with light rail. I mean, we might be the last place on earth if we're not careful. So these are things we've done badly in the past, but we have a plan and we're about to start rolling it out and this is the right conversation, but it's gonna take ages. Many of us won't be around by the time it's finished but that's just life, it's all about the children anyway, so as we started today with, so good question. Um, is this on? Um, what is the plan for improving, this is probably a question for Daniel, uh, the interchanges? So if interchanges are key to the transport network, if I'm traveling with my two kids who are five and seven and easily bored, how do I improve the, um, the experience for them at the bus stops with regards to pollution and wayfinding and just trying to negotiate to other stops and also on the buses knowing when I have to um, interchange if it's a route I haven't done before. Yep, good question. Um, very happily, my team uh, at AT has just started a project called Neighbourhood Interchanges, which is developing the business case to get funding for improving neighbourhood interchanges where two bus routes uh, overlap. Um, coincidentally, I was also in the customer uh, central part of AT today uh, for them to try to um, figure out how better to, in, not indoctrinate, that's not the right word, integrate um, customer um, understanding with all of our AT business processes. And they specifically mentioned uh, wayfinding, universal access, 
um, and, and kind of diverse trip uh, purposes because so much of our planning is set up for commuting trips and that's how we've designed things to be used and where things are positioned. Um, as a, a parent who takes my two kids on the bus after school to a squash lesson and has to bring all of their equipment and school bags and, and grumpy kids with me and in the rain with no bus shelter, I appreciate that as a challenge. Um, I, th I think it was, uh, I can't remember who mentioned about uh, Ludo saying he wasn't a woman or wasn't disabled or something. I think we have, it's been, it's been people like me who's been designing the system and that's not right. It should be people like Jessica, people like you who should be designing and um, planning the system so that, that works for you. So I think AT will be in going forward doing a lot more of that customer uh, understanding. What is the voice of the customer? What does it need? And how does our current uh, design not meet those needs? I think we've got a long way to go. And as Jessica also said, there's not a lot of money to retrofit some of these things. And that's probably going to be, the, I think the intent is there, the will is there. The hard thing will be actually getting on and delivering it. On the theme of design, how do you balance the need to move more and more people to more and more places with the need to create places and spaces people want to be? I'll take that. <laughs> if you're experiencing that as a conflict, you're doing it wrong. Because when you do it right, it's not a conflict. Um, you have to work. Uh, um, we all need to experience place and we all need to experience movement. That means place needs to accommodate movement and movement needs to accommodate place. Um, if you're experiencing a conflict about them, you may be experiencing a conflict that is really about an inefficient use of space and that we're not allocating space correctly. It is also true though that your notions of an ideal place need to take into account and adjust for the realities that movement is also a human need. So yes, you're going to need buses to go down certain streets so that human beings can, can have the freedom of access to their city. That may not be your perfect aesthetic vision, but you have to turn that into a virtue and embrace that because movement is part of life just as much as place is. Where are our runners? Yeah, it's okay. Hi, kia ora. Um, this question's for Jarrett, but I'd also like uh, Jessica and Daniel to be able to respond as well. Um, so, Women in Urbanism conducted a survey at the beginning of this year that um, showed that over 85% of women in Auckland have been harassed while using our public transport um, and walking and cycling network at some point. Um, how can we be designing transport that gives uh, women freedom from harassment? Because uh, I, I just don't see that we can have uh, freedom in, in transport planning without freedom from harassment, and we need uh, women to be safe when taking those trips. So I'd really like you to <laughs> answer that one. Uh, I, I, not being a woman, I think I, I, the easiest answer is to have more women at the table doing the design. Um, there is a... The, but there's a general question about, about crime and safety on transport that's implied there uh, for which the answer is paradoxically the more people use public transport, the safer it is. And so we have to, not, we have to manage that. We have to honor the feelings of people who choose not to use public transport out of those fears. 
we have to honor the courage of people who choose to use public transport anyway despite those fears because only because people are there will more people be there and will that and will we ultimately have witnesses when stuff goes wrong so um, um, it's not easy I mean there's a whole bunch of infrastructure things about that lighting you know good interchanges and so on that are part of that but I think also just having your perspective at the table is very important yeah and I think that was one of the things that I just mentioned uh, you know earlier on that's part of that freedom from when creating freedom so it's 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 two things it's freedom to get places but it's freedom from some behaviours. And some of that, I think, um, our society and our culture needs to respond to that. It's not just the mode. The mode is one thing. You need to have, you need to have empowered people who are able to uh, make active changes. I know, if, I know personal experience. If I'm on a train and somebody's behaving poorly on the train, my train warden isn't necessarily empowered to do anything about that. And so that's a real challenge, and I think so sometimes empower, empowering safety personnel is useful. And then the basic um, septed ideas around lighting, around, um, yeah, around people being there. So it's sort of, there's a, there's a few ways to approach it, and some of it is not just the transit, but some of it is empowering security. Yeah, um, uh, I don't think we should need to have to change the system. I think the problem there is with the men not with the system, to be honest, um, it's the culture. So um, uh, I, I think more lighting, um, CCTV, better guards and the trains is the wrong approach myself. I think um, the problem is with the men behaving badly and I apologise on behalf of men, it wasn't, wasn't me. I, I, I'm always surprised, we had a conversation at the beginning actually before this started about the behaviour of, of men and how they, they treat women and I constantly shocked and I, I do, I'm appalled about a different way of behaving just because the person you're um, dealing with is female and it seems wrong um, from my perspective to be saying we need to um, design the system differently, make the building bigger and wider and uh, more well lit um, and more escape routes or whatever. I, I think that's, that's failing to address the, the real issue which is um, a societal issue that falls on men to the way they behave and treat people around them, and I think um, I would love to be in a position where we don't have to talk about changing the system for, for that purpose. Unfortunately, I've been given the signal and I'm also being stood over for the lectern. So, panellists and Jarrett, thank you very, very much for your time this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've not been able to ask a question this evening, our panellists will be staying behind and you'll be able to come up and ask them questions. Now I'd like to ask Jensen Varghese, Principal Consultant and New Zealand Regional Manager at Emma Cagney to the lectern to do the vote of thanks. Thank you, Eddie. I'll try to keep this quick because I think there's still a few more questions for the panelists sort of after we finish up. Um, just thank you very much for the opportunity to sponsor this event and thank you to the Auckland Conversations team for organizing it. Um, for those of you that don't know us, Mark Hagney, we're a sustainable transport consultancy, so we specialise in public transport and walking and cycling, and we've been doing this in New Zealand for about 15 years now, and we had the pleasure of working with Jarrett and the Auckland Transport team on the design of the, and the implementation of the new network. So <clears throat> it was definitely a privilege to be able to sponsor this event today. Key messages from today, I guess there were so many to choose from, but I think a powerful image for me was this wall around your life, but 
as we think about a city and we think about all our people, it's not just my life, but it's designing or thinking about everyone. Uh, women, not just the peak hour commuter, it's, it's the elderly, the children, the less mobile, and how we can grow that wall for more people, not, so making it larger, but also making sure it applies to more and more people within our population. And so when we think about the Auckland Conversations event, a big part of it is informing the public. And so I think a call to everyone here today is um, the city's changing. As Auckland Transport's gonna roll out some new initiatives, some new projects, there will be controversy, there will be public criticism. And I think it's the role of all of us as members of the public. If we agree with what Auckland Transport's trying to achieve or what the project is, we need to speak up because there will be lots of criticism and a lot of that negative feedback comes back, but it's also really important that the public gets behind and says, we agree with this. We realize we're gonna lose some parking, but it means safer streets for our children. I think that's a role that we all have as members of the public. And so hopefully um, you all sort of take that as we sort of head towards the end of the year and all the new projects for next year. So um, just quick thank yous to Eddie for, for emceeing the event, um, to Jarrett, Great to have you back in Auckland again. Um, to Jessica, Daniel and Ludo, thanks for all your contributions. Thanks to everyone who's come and stayed till the end. Thanks to everyone who's watching online there. Um, and to Auckland Transport for being um, the partner organizer for this event. Uh, this is the last event for Auckland Conversations for this year. So um, please keep in touch via the website and social media about upcoming events for 2019. All these presentations can be seen online as well. And a massive thank you to Jean and the Auckland Conversations team for organizing this and all the events throughout the year. Um, I think the panelists will stick around for further questions after this, but thank you very much. <clears throat> You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.